But before I open uh, God's word, I do have to admit that I do have a bit of trepidation this morning. Um, I don't think I'm fearing the preaching moment, as weird as it is. Um, I don't think it's some kind of unbiblical anxiety, and hopefully it's not. You can pray for me. Um, Obviously, Scott's been preaching on that, so I want to apply that, and I know it's sin, but I don't want that to be true. I don't think I fear you. I love the church. I'm thankful for you. I've kind of wrestled through the awkwardness of preaching through a camera for the most part. I don't think it's the pandemic, but I think what brings me some kind of hesitation this morning is this book and the text that's before us. Demo already mentioned a few minutes ago that this is not an easy book that we're going to look at this morning. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them or scroll to the book of Ecclesiastes. That's where we're going to be. And outside of a few Psalms, I just have to admit to you that I've never preached a large portion of the Old Testament. Maybe it's just um, I've been worried or not, not sure I understood completely how, how, how that all works together, how, how, how to specifically preach the Old Testament. I don't always know what the proper preaching etiquette looks like. Uh, maybe it's because I'm young and I'm a rookie preacher, but I thought when this whole pandemic started, I, I'll, I'll open up the book of Ecclesiastes. I've always been told that it's a great book for young people. I'm the youth pastor. Let's preach through Ecclesiastes. I thought this is going to be good, right? This will be an evangelistic opportunity. This is just an unbeliever spewing out his views and philosophies of life apart from God. I thought, man, this is going to be fun. It'll be an easy road to the gospel. Because isn't that really what Ecclesiastes is about? Or is it? And I think what happened to me in the last, I don't know, six, seven weeks, is I realized there's a lot more to this book than I ever understood. There's a whole lot more. And I do think that the message of Ecclesiastes is different than an unbeliever trying to find meaning in life. I think it might be a little different than that, even though that's what I've always understood. So there's a fear this morning that this is kind of new territory for me. I don't think it's a a new message. I think I can stand on some good biblical commentators that have helped me understand the greater message that is this book. But like Frodo and Sam leaving the Shire, and Sam says, when he stops walking from the Shire, he stops and says, this is it. If I take one more step, I'll be the furthest away I've ever been from home. That's a little bit how I feel. Venturing off into a grand adventure that is Ecclesiastes. So there's a fear. It's the fear of difficulty. And then there's this last thing that I can't stop thinking about. It's that as I've read this book, I've realized in so many ways just how weak and unable I am to apply it every single day how inexperienced I feel about life. I still feel very young at times, even though I'll be 36 on June 15th in a few weeks. I still feel young. So I still don't feel like, man, I, I feel like I can't quite handle all of what's in here. And like Paul, sometimes I, I look at it and I think, who is sufficient for these things? And so I'm reminded just how insufficient I really am and how weak I am but how much this book has searched my heart and it's penetrated me. And we're not going to be able to get to all of it today, but we both need the Spirit of God to help us understand it and then to apply it. We need to cry out to the Lord 
for help. And so even in my own inexperience, or maybe yours this morning, we can look to the experience of Solomon in this wisdom book. But what I want to do, and this is going to take up a little bit of my time, I want to read two chapters of this book out loud. I, I had prayed and thought maybe I'll just try to touch in, but I'd rather you hear the words of the living God than even some of my words. I'm going to try to help give the sense and explain it, and we'll see how far we can get and hopefully be helpful to you, but let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and chapter 2, and I'm going to go quick, but let's try this. The words of the preacher, he says in verse 1, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with, with, filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all that were over, uh, all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom and much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly, till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in, in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house and I had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I had also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure in all my toil and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it and behold all is vanity and a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. And there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool happened also to me. Why then have I been so very wise? 
And I said in my heart that this also is vanity, for of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in all the days to come all will have been long forgotten how, is the, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it all to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. If you can believe it, I've titled my sermon this morning, Enjoy Your Lunch. Enjoy Your Lunch. Now that might not sound quite right based on the majority of what we just read, but that is what I think by the word of God is saying to you today is enjoy your lunch. In an hour or so, you are gonna go, you're gonna get curbside pickup, order a pizza, you're gonna make a sandwich, and you need to enjoy it. You need to enjoy it. Now you think, Shay, that's kind of simplistic. Okay, well, let me add a little more to it. You need to enjoy your lunch, here it is, because it's God's gift to you. It's God's gift to you. Now, as you're going to see, hopefully here in a few moments, I definitely think there's more to this book, and we're going to intro it a little bit this morning, but I don't think it's less than that. In fact, I actually think you can replace the word lunch with life. We could say enjoy your life because it's God's good gift to you. I don't think that's dumbing down the message of the book itself or even this section. In fact, you can replace the word lunch with just about anything that God allows you to enjoy and I really think that the message of Ecclesiastes is there. So enjoy your life. Enjoy your lunch because it's God's good gift to you. But maybe here on the front end, I do feel like I need to, to tell you why you need, just, why you need this book. I, I've been thinking a lot about that. And I, was gonna, I, I plan to teach this entire book to our young people. And I do feel like as a way of introduction, we need to know why we need this book. And I came across a story a few weeks ago about an author and sociologist by the name of Jonathan Kozel. He wrote a book called Amazing Grace where he interviews kind of the down and out of society. And he interviewed a, home, a homeless woman named Mrs. Washington and her young son, David. And during the course of the interviews, Mrs. Washington and her son were living in a homeless shelter, a homeless, actually a homeless hotel in the South Bronx in a room that he described as three steel locks on the door. Mrs. Washington was dying. And each time Mr. Koza would come for a visit, she was visibly weaker but all the stories that she could tell about life on the underside of urban America. Stories about poverty, 
injustice, drugs, violence, and rape. Mrs. Washington told Mr. Kozel about children in her building born with AIDS and about the 12-year-old at the bus stop who was hit by a stray gunfire and paralyzed. She told him about the physical abuse she had suffered from Mr. Washington and about all the difficulties poor people had getting medical care in the city. And sometimes while doing interviews, the author could, could find the mom and the son talking about spiritual things. But on one visit, sociologist Jonathan Kozel looked and saw Mrs. Washington's Bible on the quilt next to her in her chair. He said, he said what part of the Bible do you like to read? Her answer, Ecclesiastes. She said, if you want to know what's happening these days, it's right here. And I have to admit to you, it's taken me a little bit of time to agree with her. But at this point, I can tell you, this is where I'm at, at least what I understand, that if you want to know what's going on in the world, it's right here. It's right here. And I understand that all of God's word, right, is profitable and helpful for, for, for teaching and instruction, but I can't think of a book more relevant to our current moment than Ecclesiastes. In fact, one author called it the most contemporary book in the Bible. So on the front end, I just want to say we need this book. We need this book. You need to go and to keep reading it. Read Ephesians, because that's what Pastor Scott has asked you, but while you do it, read the other ebook and read Ecclesiastes. You need them both. In fact, I would say that a significant part of our faith is missing if we don't try to handle this book and, 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 and take it for what Solomon wants us to. So you ask, how can you say that? How can you say this book's so important? Well, a couple things. I think we need this book because of its realism. It deals honestly and realistically with life. That's part of it. It talks about reality. Unlike a woman at one point who told me, was accusing me of trying to push under the rug certain issues in the church, this book doesn't do that at all. In fact, it actually brings them all out in the open and wants to talk about them. It deals honestly with the wrongs in the world. It doesn't shy away from anything. It addresses hard questions of life. I think I've shared that story about the time my former boss, when I was working, my secular job, I, her, her close friend had died. I walked into her office, and what was she doing? She had up on the screen, what is the meaning of life? That's the kind of question that a book like Ecclesiastes addresses. What is the meaning of life? Does my life matter? Why are things so messed up? Maybe those are questions you're asking this morning. You need this book. It deals with injustice, it deals with the certainty of death, the brevity of life, and because of the kinds of topics it takes up, it actually plays in what one pastor, my friend, called a minor key. It plays in a minor key. In fact, I thought I would get the guitar and show you the difference between a minor and a major chord, but I think you know what I mean. But I actually think the message itself is very positive. So my title, Enjoy Your Lunch, is a reminder to not despair. <laughs> Stay with us. Stay with Solomon, keep tracking with him. I think if you just cursory read this book, you'll miss the positive notes that it rings. And this is a wisdom book. We need this book because it's got wisdom. Like Job and Proverbs and Songs of Solomon, books that are a little bit strange to us at times. It's designed for us to wrestle through it. In fact, that may be part of what he's done here almost incredibly as you wrestle through this book the same way you wrestle through the things of this life, the things that don't make sense. And so there's gonna be a struggle. It strikes a minor chord, but you need to read it and reread it. 
no matter what I can get to this morning, at the end of the day, I would just tell you, you need, you need this book. So I hope to be helpful, but here's my plan. I'm going to try to get through these. I've got just five things, and these are just kind of outlines for our text this morning. I've got two chapters. I read it before you, so I don't have to reread everything, but here they are, and this is the outline. It's the preacher, the problem, the pattern, the probing, and the point. The preacher, the problem, the pattern, the probing, and the point. Let's look at verse 1 in Ecclesiastes 1.1, and let's see. I'm not going to spend too much time here, but, but let's look what it says in verse 1 about the preacher. It says there in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. We need to know kind of who's talking, whose voice is this in this text. And unlike some of the other books that express his name, I believe that this book is written by Solomon, by Solomon. He calls himself the preacher, but I do believe it's clear that he's the son of David. And I'm amazed, honestly amazed at how much ink has been spilt trying to explain away the fact that this is maybe someone other than Solomon. I think because so most people missed the whole message of the book. But I believe, and I'm going to trust this this morning with you, that this is Solomon. The word preacher, though, it means one who gathers people, which I find ironic because we haven't really gathered people this morning, but here he is gathering the people, and it's a word in Hebrew, it's kohelet, it's, I don't really know, it just kind of means assembly. In fact, the word ecclesiastes, you know, refers to an assembly, you know that word ecclesia, we sometimes talk about in the New Testament, the gathered people of God. But this preacher is none other than Solomon. And I think part of the reason he doesn't identify himself, even though he'll say he was king over Jerusalem, he'll say it again later in the book. I think part of the reason is he's not giving some kind of official kingly pronouncement. He, 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 although he's king, he, he's writing more individually, more personally. He, he, he's got here a, a personal tone. In fact, uh, one author called it Solomon's Journal. I don't know if you ever read anybody's journal. It's kind of strange sometimes. Like I have Jim Elliott's unedited journals and you know he he was a great missionary who died but man sometimes you read like man Jim Elliot you need need some rest but here we have by the inspiration of God the journal of Solomon he's penning his thoughts on life and his views his philosophy of life he's reflecting and concluding because I believe this was written towards the end of his life and you might be thinking man I thought Solomon didn't really end up that great I actually believe that this book helps us understand that no, I think he did return to the Lord. I think this is a Solomon who has repented and returned. And although we don't have it exclusively in our Bibles, it does not mean that Solomon didn't have a late repentance in life. In fact, I do think there might be a hint of this in 2 Chronicles. In chapter 11, it says, those who set their hearts on seeking the Lord, the God of Israel, they walked in the way of David and Solomon. So I think one of the keys, even on the front end, is this is not a book written by an unbeliever. I actually think these are the words of a believer. And they are written for our edification about his thoughts and his meaning, what he understands about meaning of life. In fact, I, I know this because at the very end of the book, in chapter 12, it says in verse 11 that these words are given by one shepherd. So there's a sense in which we even have the words of Christ this morning. They're one shepherd. 
Nowhere in this book does it say that Solomon had lost it. Sometimes I think we think that. But this book is profitable for reproof and correction and training in righteousness. And that takes us from the preacher, secondly, to the problem. And here it is. Here it is. It's going to take up the bulk of our time this morning. But look at verses 2 and 3. He says it this way. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Vanity. All is vanity. You want to wake people up, walk up to the pulpit and preach that message. How can you make that kind of declaration? He doesn't just open with those words. Later, at the end of the book, he'll close with them in, in 12, 8. It's the bookends of the book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanities. And right there, we have our minor key starting to play. Some Bibles, some translations, I think the NIV translates it meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Does that encourage you this morning? Meaningless, your life. Don't you just love God's word? It's so encouraging. I, I actually think there's more to it than that. I'm being sarcastic, by the way. <laughs> I don't know if that translates on, on video. But these famous words of Solomon have been compared to that philosophy major, the freshman philosophy major who comes home and says, Mom, Dad, listen. Life is pointless. There's no meaning to this life. And I think sometimes we look at Solomon and you hear those words like, dude, this guy has lost it. Right, like that VW van in the Cars movie. Like, dude, every third blink is slower. <laughs> He's watching the traffic light. We think, dude, Solomon, what's going on here? The 60s weren't good to you. Right, what's going on? And I think that's how we hear him. We hear him as kind of a, a crazy guy. Right, is that what Solomon's saying? Is life meaningless? Is it utter vanity? And, and I, I probably am a little bit cranky kind of with our English Bibles and, and, and I, because I think all is vanity, it's hard to figure out what that means. And it took me a while to understand it because we don't use that word often in English. Like when you think of the word vanity or vain, you immediately probably think of pride. Like he or she is so vain. Or what one mom told me one time, Southern California boys always look in the mirror. They're vain. That's what you might be thinking. They're full of themselves and their achievements. But Solomon's not saying everything's proud. Or you might think of that, that part of the bathroom that the DIY shows always have, you know, that, the thing that we call the vanity. It has the, the sink and the cabinets. I don't think that's what he's after. Or you might be thinking of worthlessness. You understand that's what Solomon to mean. Life is worthless. And that's definitely closer than the bathroom idea. But I think it's still not quite right. It still leads us on the wrong path. And I kind of think of this as a why in the road in this book. Because if everything's worthless, everything meaningless, then I don't understand why in chapter four, he'll start saying things like, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. There's all these better statements. Because if one thing's better than another thing, then that other thing is not worthless. It's not meaningless. I think to say meaningless, it applies too much of a value judgment on what Solomon wants to communicate. And so if you have an ESV Bible, as I am looking at this morning, you might have a little note next to the word vanity there in verse 2. I have a little number 2. And it pulls me down to the bottom of my page, and this is what's interesting. It says vanity, and then it gives us a note here. It says the Hebrew word is chabel, translated vanity or vain. It refers concretely to a mist 
a vapor or a mere breath, and metaphorically to something that is fleeting or elusive. Well, that's helpful. Right? That's a little bit different. Mist, vapor, mere breath, fleeting, elusive. I think that's a better way to understand what Solomon's saying. Everything is a mist. Everything is a vapor. Life is fleeting. It's elusive. That's what Solomon's getting after. It's not so much that everything is meaningless. It's just a mere breath. It's a breath. There are other passages. I think they'll come up on screen. I think the guys have them. Uh, Psalm 39.5. They describe this word. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. The same word we have in Ecclesiastes. Psalm 39, 11, When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Same word. And then lastly there, Psalm 144, O Lord, What is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, his days like a passing shadow. Same word. And we're going to have this word that's translated mere breath or like a breath in other occasions that's used 35 times in Ecclesiastes. And I think it's because people translate it meaningless that people think this book is actually so negative. But Solomon is actually speaking figuratively. He's saying, you know what your life is like? It's, It's like it's passing It's temporary. It's fleeting. I like to read it as vapor of vapors, says the preacher. Vapor of vapors. All is vapors. One commentator said, soap bubbles, soap bubbles. That's your life. It's out there for a moment and it pops. Vapor. And there's kind of two ways we can look at this. One is in thinking about our vaporous life. One is quantity. You know this if you're older, but life is short. You ever heard that? Ah, oh, it goes by so fast. Right, you ever heard someone walk up to you? Man, listen, life is short. I find myself saying that to our young people now. I remember hearing it as a high schooler. Right, I remember one time in my house, actually, before we moved overseas, we were packing all of our stuff up, and I had a mom from the youth ministry we served in in Southern California. The mom had just graduated two out of the three of her, of her, of her uh, kids, and she said to me, Shay, and she looked at me, she said, keep this in mind. You blink and they're gone. That's what it's like. Life is short. And if you're a high school student, you don't think this way. And that's probably why people think this is a good book for young people because you think, oh, they've got their whole lives ahead of them. Right? And, but I'll ask, I'll ask the young people that are graduating, I'll say, didn't it go by fast? And almost always they say yes. Ask a freshman that question, they're like, this is going to take forever. But life is a vapor. That's what he says here at the start. It's short. It's a mere breath. That's quantity. But what about the quality of life? I think there's a lot to this word that speaks to the quality of life. Solomon says that, yes, life is short. And because of that, it's also actually really frustrating. It's also disappointing because it goes by so fast. It has things about it that I don't understand. In fact, the word carries this idea of grabbing after smoke. This picture came to my mind just a few weeks ago. I made a fire pit in my backyard. With my kids, we love to make fire pits. We've been doing that when the nights were, were cooler. Had a bunch of boxes. We were burning, so there was lots of smoke. My daughter, Karis, she's four. 
She thought this was great, all the smoke. She kept jumping up and down, and she was doing one of these, you know, like trying to grab it. And she goes, Daddy, I got it. Did she? Right, try to, try to grab that and put it in your pocket. That's what life's like. You can't grab a hold of it. You can't control it. It's like trying to control smoke. It doesn't do what you tell it to do. That's what life is like. And I couldn't think of a more appropriate time in our history of the world than coronavirus that this speaks to. Right? Think about that. It's a perfect example. That life is very short and it's absolutely enigmatic. It's an enigma. Right? We, we don't understand. Think of, I, back to high school seniors. You had big plans. You're going to graduate and celebrate all this years of labor that you've done. And you think, man, what kind of questions are you asking now? Why can't I have a big graduation with my friends? Life is habel. It's frustrating. Maybe you're a dad. You say, oh, why did I lose my job? You've been working your way up the ladder and a virus comes along, snatches that away. You thought you had control. You, you thought you had a 10-year plan, but sickness sweeps the globe and you're out of work. Plans change. Life is habel. Think, man, where did my money go? People I hear running to the banks trying to get that last dollar because they've lost work. You've been saving for years and now you're cutting into that, your retirement. It's like the, the, the cruise photographer I read about. The guy, he gets paid some like $75,000 to go photograph new cruise lines and talk about an industry that's been upended by coronavirus. It's the cruise industry. And now he's cutting in his retirement. He's lost all of his stock options because all of the cruise lines have basically lost value. And it's amazing. That's, if that's not frustrating enough, here's what, he's, here's what the article said that I read about him. He said, you know what's really frustrating? Is I want to get the photo of a century right now. There's a photo that I can take right now of these cruise liners that I can't get. And that's even as frustrating as losing my life savings. I'm thinking, what? He wants to try to get like eight or 10 cruise lines in one shot. And right now they're all parked off the coast of the Bahamas. And he's only ever in his lifetime of 30 years photographing been able to get three in a shot. One time he tried to get four and they couldn't get the schedules. And now there's like eight to 10 sitting at Harbor. Life is like that. It's frustrating. It's a vapor. And why is it that every time I preach in the pulpit at GCV, I have to share a story about how I lost my wedding ring? I had a story a couple times ago when I preached where I lost my wedding ring. I found it again. But just the other day, I took my family. Some of you guys are trying to zoom in right now to try to see if it's here. <laughs> I'll let you sit in suspense for a second. I went to the beach with my family thinking, oh, I'll try to get away you know, get a couple days away with my family during all this craziness. I told Bethany I was going to head down to the beach from the place we were staying. She stayed up in the house with our youngest. And so I grabbed a plastic bag to put her phone in because we had switched phones. She needed my phone for the internet. We had switched phones. So I handed her my phone. She gave me her phone. I put it in a plastic bag and I got down all the way down to the beach with my three oldest kids. And I put my wedding ring, I took it off and put it in the same plastic bag with the phone because when I get down to the beach, my hands are usually cold and for some reason, and I will show you that I have it here, but it just comes off. I've had it resized. I don't know what's going on. Maybe my hand's shrinking. I'm not sure. So we go. We play. I play with my oldest three kids. Hour goes by. My wife comes down. 
She sees her phone in the bag, in the towel bag, inside the plastic bag. She takes her phone out, gives me back my phone, and we go on our merry way. Finish our time at the beach, pack up, head up to the house. And then I'm like, hey, where's my, oh, it's in that plastic bag. My ring's in the plastic So I go back to the plastic bag. No ring. Fear strikes my heart. I run all the way back down the, I don't know how many stairs it was, down to the beach. I go back down. I find the place where we thought we had maybe lost it, and I begin combing. I'm literally on my hands and knees doing this, trying to find it. No ring. Can't find it. Life's like that. It's Habel. It's frustrating. And ironically, I I was laughing as I was on the beach because I had been studying this. Often in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon will say, this is what life is like under the sun. Under the sun. It's an absolute enigma. It's vexing. It's frustrating. It's not the description of life for an unbeliever. It happens to believers too. You had frustrating experiences? Sure. Life under the sun is just that. It's life under the sun. It's whether you have faith in God or you don't. That's just how life is. And so this was not lost on me. Even when we try to keep our wedding rings from getting lost in the cold ocean, it gets lost in the hot sand. What do you do? And so there I was, literally under the sun, on the beach, like a kid playing in sand, looking for this token of affection that my wife had given me on our wedding day. So I prayed and I prayed, 30 minutes goes by, 45 minutes goes by, nothing. And then I had this thought, maybe I'll get a metal detector. I'm looking around the beach, you know, like, I'm, like looking for a medic. <laughs> like I need someone with a metal detector, can't find it, jump on my phone, I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna go buy one. So that's what I do, I go and buy one. At the last second I ordered the two nine volt batteries that it told me uh, to buy because I can't go into the store because of coronavirus, I can't go in. I've gotta now buy it online and do curbside pickup, great. Do it all right there at the beach. I say, I go, it's 15 minutes away. I drive up, go get it, come back to the beach. Doing one of these with Titus. (laughs) Beep. Go back. Beep, beep. (gasps) I dig. I dig. I feel. Found it. Right there. A few feet from where it had launched a few hours earlier and a few inches under the warm sand. But I have to ask, I have to say this. Why did I have to go through that? That was the worst couple hours. Right? Frantically. Now there's lots more things that, that people go through that are more difficult than losing their wedding ring. But I gotta tell you, my daughter Avery at one point she goes, Dad, I'm really glad you find a wedding ring because I thought you guys would have to get a divorce. <laughs> Which I was like, what have I been teaching my daughter? Right? I'm glad it wasn't that bad. But listen, divorce happens, doesn't it? Right? Life is enigmatic. Things don't turn out the way that we want them to. There's a lot more serious questions than where is my wedding ring? Why did I get a blood clot? Why does SIDS exist? Sudden infant death syndrome? What is that? Why did we lose two babies in the womb and that unbeliever has 12 healthy, 12 healthy kids? Why does my kid have special needs? Why do I feel sad all the time? Why can't we open the church back up? Why is the government the way it is? Why did my two friends get cancer this year? Why do I seem to hit every single red light on the way to work? Why? You ever ask those questions? You ever wonder about them? 
The wisest man to ever live, Solomon says, because that's the way it is. It's Habel. Life is short, and it's utterly frustrating. He says it is the, in our English text, vanity of vanities. It's the vapor of vapors. It's a vanishing vapor, like Lord of Lords, King of Kings. It's the ultimate. So is life. It's the ultimate vapor. It's not meaningless. It's just that sometimes meaning escapes our understanding. It's vexing. It's not something that we can control, though we try. There's a lot more I can say about that. But in verse 3, he asked that question, what does man gain? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That is a very ultimate question. That's a heart-probing question for you, for you, and for me. That's an ultimate question. What gain is there? He's asking the question like, like an accountant. What's left over? Am I in the black? What are my profits? What gain is there under the sun? And he'll take all of Ecclesiastes to answer that question. But let me show you what he does as tests to answer that question. He begins to answer it here. And, and let's look at this. It actually starts, I'm not going to read all of it, but basically 4 through 11, it takes us to the third thing from the problem to the pattern. The pattern. Verses 4 through 11, Solomon here is describing the patterns he sees in the world to answer that question. Verse 4, he says, generation comes, generation goes. Everything goes round and round. Earth remains forever. Verses 5 and 6, sun rises, sun sets, wind blows, it goes round and round. Verse 7, streams just keep running, but the sea never fills up. Water just keeps coming and going. Verse 8, it's weariness. Right? The, the eye isn't even satisfied with anything, nor the ear with anything. And in verse 9, he has this statement, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. You say, oh, Solomon, wait a second, I know something new. The novel coronavirus. Gotcha. New. He says, really? He sits back in his recliner, says, really? New? You've never had sickness before? There's nothing new. You say, well, wait a second, I've got an iPhone. That's a, and he says, okay, what about it? What does it do? He said, well, you know, it's a, it's a great way for us to communicate, and it's fast. And he says, oh, really? Communication? That's not new. Oh, sure, yours is a little faster. But, you know, I used to send my letters via Dove. I mean, I don't know. Just because it's faster doesn't make it new. Verse 10, it's already been. It's already been, there's nothing new. He's not trying to be exhaustive. He's just simply pointing out that in this cycle of life, this pattern, we always want something new to break the cycle, but it never can. We try to distract ourselves with all kinds of things, but it never quite satisfies. We're never satisfied. We always want something more. And he's trying to answer that question, what gain is there? Are you starting to see his answer? What gain? In verse 11, he, he speaks of memory. Here's something we don't like to talk about. He says, there is no remembrance of former things when there, and there will be no, nothing after to be remembered. Listen, can I just tell you what he's saying here? You will be forgotten. You'll be forgotten. But so often we want to try to be remembered, right? Right? We, we, you could try as you, as you might. You can try you become the best football player. You get your name up on the gym wall. You go viral, get your 15 minutes of fame, become a YouTube sensation for our young people, have a million Instagram followers, become the world's greatest preacher, 
become Jeff Bezos, who I read this week is going to be the first trillionaire, and then just give it a little bit of time. Five minutes, an hour, two weeks, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. There's no remembrance of former things. You and I will be forgotten. That's because that's what life is like. No one seems to remember us. If you're trying to think about your great-great-grandpa's name, even your great, I don't know my great-grandpa's name. I know my grandpa's name is Gordon. He was an important person. Surely he had dreams and visions and all kinds of things. But I barely remember him. There's no remembrance. There's no gain. Right? That's his answer. There's no gain. That's the pattern of life shows this. But, but surely the, he, there's something I can do to leverage or gain an advantage over this vaporous life. Solomon says, no way. He says in verse 14, it's like a striving after wind. It's like shepherding the wind. Ultimately, ultimately, this is because you and I will die. We will die. And that topic is not a light topic. Right? Even for our own church, we have felt the sting of death often in our people, even just recently. But listen, there's a quote here I have from his book, Remember Death. It's an entire book on death. Matthew McCullough says that Ecclesiastes fits within this wisdom literature as a powerful warning. He says this, even if you manage your life well, even if you take all the right opportunities and reach all your goals, what you end up with is never enough. Why is there no gain? Because you die. You die. Death is actually a topic he'll take up often in this book. You're not remembered because you die. It's the great equalizer. It's why I love taking our young people up to the ice rink and let them play broom ball with, where they have to stand on the ice with, with nothing um, to, 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 to traction their, their shoes. They don't have skates on. They just have their shoes. Everybody falls down. It's the great equalizer. No one's good at broom ball. But in life, you can't get past the fact that everybody will die, which is why I jokingly said in my study that Benjamin Franklin was wrong. He's commonly attributed to that quote, you know, two things are certain, death and taxes. No, I think you can probably get around the taxes. You can't get around death. You can't get around it. That's the pattern. It comes and it goes. And if you think this is just Solomon, if you think this is just him being crazy, Paul said something very similar about the world in Romans 8.20. Maybe you missed this. He says this, for the creation was subjected to futility. Futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That word futility is the same exact Greek translation of our word here, habel. Creation is like that. That's just how it is. It's a vapor. It's just monotonous is what he says. It doesn't matter if you know Christ or don't, Right? And so you think, okay, Solomon, I get you. I hear you. Surely there's a way. Surely there's a way around this, this futility, this vanity, this vapor. And Solomon says, yeah, I know I tried a bunch of things, and I don't have time to get into them, but they basically run. This takes us to our fourth point. He has these tests I'm calling the probing. He run, it runs from basically 1 verse 12 all the way to 2.23. And he has these three tests, and I'm just going to give them to you in rapid fire. The first test is one of wisdom. He says, so I, does wisdom profit? Does wisdom give me gain? Solomon's answer in chapter 2 is essentially that it's better than folly. But then he comes to that conclusion, both the fool and the wise will still die. 
So wisdom, no gain. And here's why. Because you can't use wisdom to gain in this life. You can't use wisdom to control it. It's still like grabbing smoke. Wisdom won't do that in and of itself. It's not how it works. Ultimately, no gain on the play, no yards, back to the line of scrimmage. Second thing he tries, pleasure. Runs through basically the first part of chapter two. He says, I'll try pleasure. Surely there's gain in pleasure. For Solomon, this means living it up, taking in the local comedians, drinking it up, buying property, building property, farming, servants, slaves, animals, stuff, stuff, and lots of stuff, money. He tries all those things. And he says in verse nine of chapter two that he did that, he did that while his wisdom remained with him. I think that's an important verse. He didn't do this. He didn't test these things without his wisdom guiding him. And he ends up in verse 11. He says, there's nothing to be gained in pleasure. Nothing to gain there. No yards on the play, back to the line, a scrimmage. No gain. Third thing he tests, he says, work. I'll just put my hand to the plow. Solomon calls it toil. He says, I, I, you know, I, I, I can't, you know, I, there's not enough stuff and, uh, you know, I can't be wise, but what about work? Answer, firm no. Why? He'll say, it in, he'll say it in verse 18, because you end up leaving all your stuff to somebody else. Right, you die. And that other person that you leave it to, they might not be as wise as you were and they might waste it. Even for Solomon, work was a vapor. You come, you work, you die, leave it for somebody else. Third down, thunder, can't convert the play, no gain. Should we punt? Do we punt? Maybe that's what you're thinking. You say, Shay, I thought this book was positive. Right? This is bleak. This guy's a, a fatalist. He's tried it all. And you have to read that to really get the sense of everything that I'm saying you might even be thinking, why go on living? Right? Shouldn't we, as some philosophers who've read this book, shouldn't we just say, listen, let's just all commit suicide and leave behind this horrible situation that we're in? Should we just give up? Is that what Solomon wants? If you've had that thought, even as I've shared briefly, if you've had that thought, it was intentional. Really quick, turn your Bible to chapter 12. The reason I know this is because he told us that that's what he was trying to do. He wants you to be pricked. It was intentional. In chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, he says it this way. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed of the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. You know what a goad is? It's a long pointy stick that they used to use to prod oxen to keep plowing. And Solomon here says the words of the wise are like that. They, they sting a little bit, that they keep you going. And I think that's part of what he wants to do with the beginning of Ecclesiastes. You have got to keep reading. He's doing this so you, the intended purpose of pricking your conscience to get your mind thinking, what are you talking about, Solomon? What is the point? What is the point? And here, I want to take you to the fifth thing. We've gone from the preacher, the problem, the pattern, the probing, and the point. Look down with me back in chapter 2, how he finishes chapter 2. He doesn't say everything here, but he definitely allows us to come up for air. I'll read this, and I'll give you the point. There is nothing better 
For a person, then he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after win. Let me give you the point. Here's what Solomon's leading us to. He's taking us down this trail we've looked at briefly. But here's the point. Life is a gift. Life is a gift. It's not gain. Life's a gift. It's not gain. You want to know why there's no gain in all this stuff that Solomon tested all the patterns? It's because there was never really supposed to be. Life is just like that. It's vaporous. It's a mere breath. It's not fatalistic. It's just reality. But it's a gift. It was never supposed to be a means of gain. That's what Solomon says. And here, down in verse 24, he says the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is that the believer gets to enjoy life because they understand it as a gift from God. Even enjoyment is a gift from God. But our problem so often is that we try to eke out of this life whatever gain we can. We try to make life do what we want. And we think in and of itself, there's going to be enjoyment. And that's not how it was intended to be. You can't control life through your work. You can't gain anything through pleasure on this life. You try to push back the mistiness, you'll still die. What we need to stop doing is trying to leverage our lives as a means to control it. We try to make life work the way we want, and it never quite does. And Solomon says, I know. That's how it is. So you need to understand it as a gift. And here, church, here's where this requires faith. This requires faith. You have to trust God. You have to rely on who God is and that he's in control. He's in the control tower. We're in the airplane. Right? We're stuck on the runway sometimes. That's life. We don't get tours of the control tower. That's how it is. We don't get to do that. So it doesn't mean despair. No. You don't give up on life. No. Faith says move forward into it, knowing what Solomon knows, that it's vaporous, it's vexing, it's an enigma. It goes by fast. And then enjoy it. Enjoy it. Work's not going to satisfy. Pleasure's not going to satisfy. You can't control it. You need faith to believe that God has it under control and that it's a gift. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You don't have to know. You don't have to know. Are you in a frustrating situation trying to control life by all kinds of things? You're frustrated because things don't work out the way you wanted them to? Listen, you don't have to figure it out all the time. If you're a Christian, if you know Christ, then you know the one who has it all figured out. Right? You know him. I feel like sometimes we like try to be like Fix-It Felix, another Disney movie. Everything he touches, he tries to fix. You don't have to do that. That's actually what sinners do. That's what he says in verse 26. They just keep going and gathering and collecting, trying to make something of this vapor. And that's like herding cats. That's essentially what Solomon says. Striving after wind. 
And actually, in verse 26, he even says that eventually all the unbelievers, they're going to give all their stuff to the believers. So, it's amazing. But that's life. Is your life messy? Okay. My life has messy things too. Right? You have frustrating kids. My kids frustrate me at times. Right? You have to enjoy them. God is in the control tower. Right? And at times, life is more like this, like the book I read to my son in his bed last night, and this is, I'm kind of starting to land the plane here, but life is more like the book, we're going on a bear hunt than we think. Right? We're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. What a beautiful day. We're not scared. Oh, no. And insert any hard situation. In the book, it says Mud. Oh, no, mud. Can't go over it. We can't go under it. We've got to go right through it. That's how life is. That's what God may be calling you to do this morning. You want to go through something? You need to trust him. You're going through something hard you don't understand? It's okay. You don't have to understand everything. Listen, Job didn't understand everything that happened to him. Same way Solomon didn't have it all figured out. That's why I love this quote from N.D. Wilson. He says, Solomon, the richest, wisest, and most thoroughly married man in history, said that our lives are but vapor, that our days are full of sorrow, and that while greater knowledge is a greater burden, we should still get wisdom. We should grow knowing that our burden will grow with us. And then he says this, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon faces the whirlwind. Where Job stood in loss, Solomon stands in plenty. Both stare at the tininess of man excuse me, at the tininess of troubled man and both face the massiveness of the transcendent artist. We need to look at our lives the way that that is described for Job and Solomon. Look at the incredible, all-powerful, all-knowing God that he has it all under control when this life is so enigmatic and vexing we don't understand. And if you're an unbeliever and you're hearing that, your life will continue to frustrate you. And the, the sad part is you won't have enjoyment That's exclusive. That's exclusive for those who know Christ. You need to come to Christ. Put your faith and trust in him this morning. But if you're a believer, if you're a believer, you need to hear these passages. They're gonna come up on the the screen. Ecclesiastes 3 says the exact same way. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Ecclesiastes 5.18, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Ecclesiastes 8.18, And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Aren't you encouraged by that? That is a way to look at life that makes sense when life doesn't. Be joyful. Enjoy your kids. They're a gift from the hand of God. Enjoy your wife, she's a gift from God. Enjoy your work, it is a gift from God. Solomon addresses this. Enjoy your toys, they're a gift from God. Enjoy your wisdom, it's a gift, it's not a means of gain, but it's from God. Enjoy your life, it's a gift from God. And today, right now, go enjoy your lunch. It's not less than that. 
It's not less. Eat and drink and be joyful. It's a gift from God.